Uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. I'm sorry about last week. I literally preached the longest sermon I ever have before. Um, and uh, <laughs> I looked at the time signature on the podcast when, when Josh posted it, and I texted I'm like, did I really go 64 minutes? I'm so sorry. Uh, this morning will only be 75 minutes, so I'm not going to go much longer. Uh, but I'm excited to jump back into the book of Matthew. Uh, for those of you that have been with us for a few months, you know that we started in Matthew uh, in the fall, and we're planning on sitting, at, sitting in, camping out in Matthew for a while now. But uh, in the prior weeks in the book of Matthew, we talked about probably what was the central most theme throughout the book of Matthew uh, and all four gospel accounts of Jesus' life. And this theme was the kingdom of God, and we've talked a lot about it. And so as we turn the pages this week into this next section in Matthew, um, it's almost as though Jesus goes from talking about this kingdom of God that's here and now, and then how we actually live as part of that kingdom. And so for the weeks ahead, we're going to talk a lot about doing what Jesus did as we look through Matthew 5 and 6. Um, with Matthew's gospel, it was directed towards this audience that was steeped in Hebrew tradition. And so the gospel of Matthew stresses over and over again that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah that was foretold of in the Old Testament, and that the kingdom of God in heaven um, is at hand, like it's here and now. We read as Jesus said this, that the kingdom of God is here, and that Jesus offers us this way of life that promises us eternity in the kingdom of heaven. And so this next section of Matthew, as we get into chapter 5 here, we're going to dive into this, this sermon that Jesus gives that's called the Sermon on the Mount. Anybody ever been to Israel before? Anybody ever stood on the Mount of Beatitudes or seen the Mount of Beatitudes that sits north of the Galilee? And what an awesome setting it is. Literally this big rolling green hill, like pasture almost, that overlooks the Galilee from the north to the south. It's an amazing setting that they say this is where Jesus would have given the sermon. Um, but... The teachings of Jesus were extremely simple but unique during Jesus' time that he walked on this earth. Um, Jesus started teaching in, in 30-ish AD um, during this Roman rule, which we've talked about in the, in the past weeks. And there were four major groups in Judaism during this time that we're going to hear a lot about over the coming months. Um, you had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots all who had these very different viewpoints when it came to Judaism. And so I wanted to give you a quick recap on these four groups, and then um, we'll dive in. But the Pharisees, you had these Pharisees demanded like a strict observance to the law of Moses um, that was found in the Torah. And so they, they also, the Pharisees, accepted the oral tradition of Jewish customs and rituals. So they adhered to the lot of Moses, but they also accepted um, oral traditions and customs. Then you have this group called the Sadducees. Um, the Sadducees were primarily from priestly families, and they accepted the law of Moses, but they, they rejected oral tradition. So unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees leaned on the law of Moses, but oral tradition wasn't necessarily introduced. And so the Pharisees also, unlike the Sadducees, believed in the resurrection of the dead. And then you had this group called the Essenes, and the Essenes, the Essenes were like this monastic group. They, they awaited this Messiah that would establish this kingdom on earth and free Israel, the Israelites from oppression altogether. And then you had this last group, the Zealots. Um, how many of you guys 
Simon the Zealot, one of the, of the apostles that we'll read of later, um, they, they were this militant Jewish group who wanted freedom for their homeland, and they were willing to do anything in order to get it. So they were, they were fighters. And we have these Ten Commandments that were established in the book of Exodus, which were given to us by Moses on, the Mount, of, uh, on Mount Sinai. And communicated throughout the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses, were these thou shalt not phrases. Anybody not ever heard the Ten Commandments before? Awesome. You've all heard them. They, they were a bunch of thou shalt not phrases, like these evils that we have to avoid in our everyday life, the things you will not do. But then in contrast with Jesus' message, Jesus' message was different in the sense that Jesus' message wasn't a bunch of thou shalt nots. It was uh, a message of humility, uh, a message of generosity and charity and, and brotherly love. And so Jesus taught more about transformation from the inner person, unlike the law that was presented by Moses. So Jesus, at this Sermon on the Mount here, presents these beatitudes in this very positive sense, like these virtues sort of in life that that ultimately lead to a future reward. And so in in Jesus' teaching, um, love sort of becomes the motivation for followers of Jesus, for the Christian. And so all of these beatitudes have this meaning buried in them that's, that's buried in this promise of salvation, not in this world, but in the next world, in eternity. So as we talked about before, this kingdom of God being established on this earth, he is the one who rules it, and it's not a kingdom in a worldly region like in the United States. It's a kingdom in existence in the hearts of people as people begin to draw near, to call upon, have faith in Jesus and entrust their lives to him. They enter into this kingdom. So we live in this earth, but with one foot on this earth and one foot in heaven. Does that make sense? So we're living here and now for eternity, and we're also experiencing some of heaven here and now through the power and the the redemptive work of Jesus. Um, And so the amazing part about these beatitudes that we're going to get into Um, is that they promise us this way of life that leads to salvation. They they, they also bring about even this peace in the midst of our trials and our tribulations on this earth. There's something really sweet about them. And as I've been praying over this message this morning, I I, I believe that Jesus has something really neat in store for us in the coming months as we study the ways of Christ. But here's here's the, 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 the hitch, sort of, is that Unless we take these words as truth and begin to walk in the truth that he's given us, these words that we read mean nothing because he desired to do a work in us that would actually manifest through us and outside of us into the world we live in. And so my prayer for you, Anthem Church, is that in the coming months, we would not read the words of Jesus and about the life of Jesus and this life that he called his disciples to and just think that we should go on in everyday life living as we've always lived because Jesus is calling us into another kingdom. And we talked a lot about the fact that this kingdom is upside down. It doesn't make sense to most, this kingdom that he's called us to live into. And so um, let's pray and then let's dive into this passage. Jesus, I thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to draw near to you through your word. And I pray, Jesus, that you have your way in us and through us. I pray, God, that your hand be upon your church this morning. For those that are here that um, maybe come here jaded, maybe come here um, resentful, maybe there's just 
some block, blockages in their heart, I pray, Jesus, that you would reveal yourself to them. And for those of us who follow you, Jesus, I pray that this would be just a life-giving passage for us, that we would see what it is you truly have offered us um, in your ways, Jesus. And so I pray for your blessing upon this time in your name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. You guys there? Say word. All right. Seeing the crowds, he went up onto the mountain, and he sat, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So in some weird way, Jesus in this, this, this sermon here um, sort of gives us eight ways to be happy. Um, you see Matthew 5 opens up with the string of blessed are, blessed are, the, the poor in spirit, the meek, the merciful, the peacemakers. And this Greek word for, for blessed is makaros, which literally means happy. It, it comes from this root word in the Greek that means happy, makar. And so Jews would often use this term to describe a person in, in a state of salvation, like someone with the blessing and favor of God in their lives, like they were happy. And so these eight things are descriptions of really a saved person's heart, a heart that was blessed by God, a heart filled by God, a happy heart. And I warn you this morning that what Jesus says here is upside down from everything else that we hear. Even if you're not a Christian, I think you'll have to admit that these things, even though they're counterintuitive at first, make a ton of sense. Jesus was uh, nothing if not logical, and he had this profound understanding of the human spirit. As we talk about him talking about the, the inner person, he knew the way the insides of a person function, the soul of somebody, which is why for centuries even, people who didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, like Thomas Jefferson, Gandhi, even Oprah Winfrey, have all said that Jesus is one of the best moral teachers of all time. Like there was something about him, something about his teaching, that even those who don't claim to be Christians found value in the things he taught about. Because they're, they're, some of them, the, the, the non-Christian could even take as, as just good moralistic views on the world. Like these are good ways to act, good things to, to say and a way to be. But he says in verse one through three here, says, seeing the crowds, he goes up on the mountains. And I'm gonna come back to this detail at the end. And it says, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, he opened up his mouth and he taught them. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I wanna spend a little bit more time on this passage than some of the others, because I think it's this key to sort of understanding all of the others that we're gonna read through. In fact, once you get this one, like all the others seem to sort of fall in place. I want you to write this down this morning if you have something to write with and you want to take notes. If not, all good. But this idea of poverty of spirit means that you, 
Embrace daily dependence on God for all that you need. So poverty of spirit means that you don't feel that you have the sufficient resources in yourself to face life's challenges. So when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, it means there's a deficit in spirit for them, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It has less to do with, um, like, whether you're rich or poor, less to do with money, um, but whether you embrace this daily dependence on God for all that you need. So in the Greek, there were these two words for poor. Um, The first word that they would use in the Greek referred to somebody who struggled financially, somebody who barely had uh, even enough money to eat. We call those college students, right? Um, The second was a different word. And the second word for poor, it actually meant the outcast of society. It meant the despised. And these are the kind of poor that Jesus is talking about, those who were despised for how weak they are. These end up being the ones that he says will inherit the kingdom itself. And because these eight things that we're talking through, these eight blessed statements comprised really Jesus' core teachings as we move into uh, deeper into the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus often took what he teaches here and he'd use them again in some sort of parallel la- or parable la- later in his sermon. So he'd kind of pull back from what he's teaching here when he'd share a parable with his disciples or with somebody. For instance, in Luke chapter 2, there's this parable that he shares. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, uh, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. I tell you, This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So here's this parable about these two men that go into the temple. One prays to himself and is very religious. The other beats his chest and he shouts out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So the tax collector, Jesus said, went home justified not the religious man, because the religious man walked in, in, in really rich in his own righteousness, and, which was actually, if you think about it, no righteousness at all. Like he, he walked out with only the righteousness that he had in himself, not the righteousness of God. The tax collector, however, walked poor in spirit. Like he, he left with the righteousness of God that was credited to him. He knew what he didn't have and he expected the Lord to be that which would sustain him and make up the deficit. Um, I, I was thinking this week about the fact that God really only fills empty hands, doesn't he? God, God fills those that empty themselves, which means that if you're convinced of your own righteousness, that you can make it on your own, you actually won't receive the righteousness of God because you think you can make up for that righteousness by the things you do and your right acts yourself. But if you feel like you're poor in righteousness, you can receive this gift of righteousness that Jesus offers to us. And you, you can apply the, this sort of principle across the whole spectrum of Christian life. 
Um, think about it like this. Those who feel capable as parents probably won't experience the power of God in their parenting, right? Because they think they've got it figured out. Anybody here feel sufficient as a parent? <laughs> Come on, somebody. Nobody feels sufficient as a parent. Okay, if you felt sufficient as a parent like you could do it, you, you wouldn't need help. But it's not poor parenting that actually messes up our kids. It's actually confidence in your good parenting, isn't it? It's confidence that you can do it on your own that actually makes up poor parenting. Like you want your kids jacked up, then figure that you have the way and teach them all your ways. If you want kids that will follow after the things of God, then teach them the things of God and may your kids know, parents, that you cannot do it without the power and the grace and the mercy of God at work in your life. Um, Take that across any uh, aspect of your life. Like those who feel capable in their relationships, those who feel capable in ministry, those who feel capable in their careers. Like, it's actually when we depend on God and not ourselves for provision, for wisdom, for power, for guidance, that we actually begin to access the power of God. When we know we can't do it, God only fills empty hands. God, God, my, my prayer this last week is that God would make us this poor, poor people in ourselves and mighty in our reliance on him that we would be poor in spirit, but strong in Jesus, that we would inherit what he has for us. And so um, most of us have spent our whole lives trying to become anything but poor in spirit. Like we we want to be rich in spirit, or at least, we at least want to be middle class in spirit, don't we? we we've worked hard for this. We, we want to feel like we're actually sufficient for the task at hand. Like, like we have things under control. We don't need to be afraid going into the future because we have it figured out. We, we want to feel as though we're sufficient for the task. But not only does this keep us actually cut off from God's help that he's offering us, but it also corrupts our spirit. This is where you start to see wisdom in Jesus' ways. Like the man in the parable, being rich in ourselves makes us proud. It makes us have disdain for other people. And this religious man despises others he sees as not good or capable, as capable as he is. He looks down on others because he thinks he hasn't figured out while they do not. So when, when we become rich in ourselves, we become very self-focused. And the reason this guy in Jesus' parable prays to himself is that that's all he thinks about. It's about him. I was reading this excerpt from a book recently, and it talks about how we're basically raising the most me-focused generation in history. Kids that are rich in spirit. And you can see that in all the habits on social media. How many of you guys spend at least a little bit of time on social media? Anybody get their screen reports this morning on their Apple phones? You want to talk about how much you each had this week? Um, but if you're on social media at all, you see this obsession with selfies. Like, it's very me-focused. The, you know that there's one million selfies posted on the internet in our country every single day. A million. And so we, we fill this world with pictures of ourselves, like doing the duck face thing. And... Uh, 
and it becomes all about us. Like, did you even know that 36% of the photos posted on the internet are enhanced? So not only do we post pictures of ourselves, but we want people to think that we don't have any zits, right? And so we run them through filters so we actually look really good with the pictures that we post. We, we become proud. We become me-focused people. We start to look ridiculous to everybody else because you start to look so good in and of yourself. And this man's praying to himself. Like if other people in the story had heard this man talking to himself about how awesome he was, he would, have, he would have been completely embarrassed. And he's talking about like, at least I'm not like these guys. At least I haven't done this. At least I haven't done that. And every now and then, I don't know about you, but in my own life, something happens that reveals how self-focused I am. Anybody else ever go through that in your life? Something occurs and you realize like, wow, this is becoming a lot about me. Maybe the worst effect of being rich in yourself is that you become ungrateful um, because you're always focused on what you think you're entitled to and how others aren't giving that to you. You always feel like you deserve more, like you're being wronged in some way and that makes us unhappy. It makes us ungrateful people Ungrateful people are unhappy people. And when you realize that every breath you take and every step you take is this gift from God in grace, that makes you grateful. You become happy because grateful people are happy people. And so we need to have the spirit of Gideon, for instance, who said, I'm the smallest man from the smallest tribe. Or David, who said, who am I, God, that you should offer to build me a house and promise me all these things? Or Isaiah, who says, like, woe is me. And he goes on to verse 4. In chapter 5, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus doesn't say here necessarily why we're mourning, but I think that mourning goes along with being poor in spirit. When you feel powerless, when you feel weak, when you feel unrighteous, you mourn. And God comforts us. And I also think that based on some of Jesus' future teachings that we'll get into, Uh, That mourning means this willingness to actually enter into the pain of other people, which is really interesting. Mourning actually means we're we're being relationally connected to others, like you're entering into other people's lives. You're feeling even with others. And I think one of Jesus' most famous parables, the the story of the Good Samaritan, um, you know, these two men pass by and one stops to help. He didn't have to help. He, he, he didn't know this guy. There were probably tons of excuses um, why he shouldn't stop and he had other stuff to do. It was dangerous. It was costly. And what I realized in my own life is that the older I get, it seems as though the trajectory of my life becomes more and more isolated. Does anybody else ever feel like that? The older I get, the harder it is to connect with my neighbors. The older I get, the, the harder it is to open my, lives, my life up to those in need. The older I get, the harder it is to um, be in a smaller group of people and have my life be kind of an open book to others. Um, because the older we get, the more we think we don't need others. The average person, I think, in our city thinks, like, just give me my home. Uh, just give me my lake house. Uh, maybe some of you would rather be on some land out in the middle of nowhere. Um, but we just want our house. We want our, our life, our home. 
Um, we want our hobbies, we want our kids, we want our grandkids, and, and somehow we chalk that up the older we get to what it means to have a happy and fulfilled life. Like, keep the rest of the world away. I just want the stuff that makes me happy. And Jesus sort of flips it because Jesus is saying, actually, you'll never really be happy that way. Like, as your heart closes in on itself and, and it becomes darker and your heart becomes more self-focused, you'll actually never be blessed by God because it's all about you. You were designed, church, to pour yourselves out into others. You were designed to face outward with your life and not inward. And I can speak firsthand in saying, the older I get, the more I have to, the more I have to fight against this, this tendency to face inward and just want for myself because we justify things like, I'm tired, I've worked hard my whole life. It's time for me to get some me time. Anybody in here ever said that in the last two days? Um, we, we want life to be about us because somehow we've justified that because we've spent so much of our time pouring out. I mean, I'll be honest, even as a pastor, my wife and I have these conversations all the time. Oh, it seems like we're always giving to other people. Oh man, it seems like people are always coming to us with their stuff and they need help and yada, yada, yada. And we can go down the list and we can, we can really like begin to bask in our own sorrows but at the end of the day, what you realize is that this is the life that Jesus has called us to, to realize we cannot live it in and of our own strength. It's too hard. But there's something about stepping into other people's lives that is really sweet. There's something about coming into other people's pain that is really sweet to stand with them and to walk with them. I was thinking this week about those who open up their hearts and their homes to actually take in the pain of others, like, it's outstanding. I mean, I think about, like, foster parents, people who take in kids, not because they have to, but because they're entering into the pain of a child and they're weeping with them. Like, I have a ton of respect for those who foster children. I have a ton of respect for those who choose to involve themselves in local projects in our city with the less fortunate and putting others before themselves and not worrying about their lives. I have a ton of respect for those who have chosen to have kids even though it messes up their ambitious life. There's a reason Seattle averages like 1.1 people a home or something or whatever it is. There's like 1.1 kids at home or whatever. People are not having kids nowadays. It gets in the way of our careers. It gets in the way of the life that we're trying to build for ourselves. I think about even our missionaries who choose, like think about the Shatterick's and the Johns and people that we've sent out who actually choose to engage in cross-cultural ministry work, to take their life and uproot it from here in the States where it's fairly, fairly comfortable and place their family of five or six in an unknown area to devote their lives' work to Jesus being made known through them to others that do not know Christ. There's something awesome and selfless about that. Not only will you be happier in this life when you enter into the pain of other people, you'll actually be eternally comforted for basically leveraging your time and, and your talent and your treasures for other people. Jesus says in verse five, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This, this idea of meekness, this term meekness, it means basically taking second place instead of first place whenever you can. Anybody like that idea? 
Like I will, I will intentionally choose to put myself in second. It means leveraging your power to serve others and to not exalt yourself. And I think of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, like Jesus deserving the spot of the Lord and the master and him getting down on his hands and the feet in the role of a servant to wash his disciples' feet. And because he does this, Paul says what in Philippians 2? He says, God exalted him and gave him the name above every other name. Like when, when we take the role of servant, when we take second place in our life, God exalts you. There's something amazing about that. Like parents, any of you parents ever hear stories about your kids doing something for another child at school? None of you? Okay, we can pray for that. Um, when I hear stories of my kids like sharing a lunch with another kid or protecting another kid from Uh, somebody who's bullying them or offering a jacket to another kid that's cold or teaching another kid to do something or spending time with a kid in their class that most kids do not. Like, what do you feel like as a parent when you hear those stories? So proud, right? Like, yes, good job. Like, my, my kid is literally putting somebody else before himself, And I want to encourage you this morning that God is proud of you when you do the same. When you choose to see those that that have less, that are in difficult circumstances in life, that when, when you choose to take your career and your agenda and the things that you want to build and set those aside in order to focus your attention on his people, like God wants us to be these generous people, but his generosity is actually bestowed upon those that put other people first. Let me ask you a question this morning, a rhetorical question. How would your life look different if you always put yourself in the second place and trusted God to take care of you? How would your life look different? Jesus goes on in verse six, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. What an awesome statement. To to hunger and to thirst for righteousness means to crave fellowship with God above everything else in your life. We're all hungry people, and we make decisions on a daily basis as to how we're going to satiate that hunger. Where are you going to fill it? Are you going to go to everything that this world has to offer in order to satiate the hunger that you feel, or are you going to draw near to the Lord. Um, Solomon says that God created us with eternity in our hearts, which, which means like we have this hole the size of eternity in our hearts that God created us with and that we all choose a way in our life to fill these holes in our life. We're all scrambling and trying to figure out how we're gonna satiate that hole in our life. So we do it with money and we do it with relationships. We do it with the approval of man. But this morning, I want to remind you that it can only be filled by God. Like, did you know that, that a bucket that would hold all the water, uh, sorry, a bucket that would hold all the water a family of four would use in a day would be the size to fill up a pickup truck bed of water. One family of four could fill up a pickup bed size, uh, a, a truck's pickup bed size of water. And now I want you guys this morning to imagine that this bucket's so big that all the water in the ocean 
wouldn't even cover the surface area of the bottom. Like, this bucket is your soul. And Solomon says that God has put eternity in your hearts, which means your hearts yearn for something that only his eternal love can fill. Like, money can't do it. It's not that you need more money to be happy. Money's not big enough to actually fill the hole that you were born with in your heart. You give yourself the money, and what happens? You become worried, you become selfish, you become dissatisfied. Romantic love cannot do it. Like, love for a person. Like, you give yourself to that, and you become jealous, you become obsessive, you become terrified of being single, Um, You become unhappy in your marriage when you bank it on another person. And those who hunger for approval never get it enough. And they become proud. Petty people become obsessed with themselves all of the time. But when you give the passions of your heart to the God who created it, not only are you satisfied, but you become a radiant, life-giving person. Not only are you taken care of, but others are taken care of through you. And he says in, in verse seven, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, mercy merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive merciful. Um, the merciful, these are those who give forgiveness to the same measure that it's been extended to them. In the last few weeks, we've talked about this a lot. Um, blessed are the merciful, Because what if God forgave your sins only according to the measure that you forgive others? What if? It would run out at some point. This verse used to confuse me because it sounded like if I failed to forgive someone, then Jesus would basically not forgive me. And that seemed to conflict a little bit with some of Jesus' other teachings in the Bible about being saved by grace through faith. But those who know that they've been forgiven show that by forgiving others. We as followers of Jesus, you wanna prove your forgiveness? Thank you. Then forgive others. It's not an option. He's forgiven you over and over again, time and time again, his grace upon grace upon grace. And so when I look at our lives, oftentimes grace runs out and forgiveness runs out. And so we're basically extending grace and forgiveness to people based on the measure that we have within us, not on the measure that God has bestowed upon us. Verse eight, he says, blessed are the poor and the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Like the pure in heart are those who keep their hearts free of the things that grieve God. What do you think grieves the Lord the most? Any suggestions? Sin? Impurity, like the things that cause walls between us and him. Like there's tons of, uh, of reasons that we might avoid sin in our lives because it's just not healthy. But the most powerful one is actually that we want to know God. We don't want anything to get in between us and him. Like you can't pursue God and tolerate sin in the same setting. It's impossible. And so if you, if you are the, one of the ones in here who have things that, that, that you persist in, even though you know they're wrong and still know God, you need to get rid of this illusion. Like we need to walk away from these things, turn from these things, and see how it says only the pure in heart 
can see God. Like, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see him. Anybody here want to see God? Their eyes opened, their hearts opened to actually seeing him, knowing him, walking with him. I'm such a deep, deep, hand in hand, like arm in arm relationship with the Lord. I want that for my life. I can't hold on to all these other things and desire this and try to walk that out. It's just impossible. And what's crazy about sin, honestly, is that it affects our ability to even perceive God. Like, like the reason we can't often see God or know his will often has to do with the, the, what we've allowed to come in and confuse and block how we actually see him. A lot of times we complain about how confusing God is like, or how hard it is to find God's will when the darkness isn't in him, it's actually in our hearts. We've separated ourselves. And purity does lead to clarity in our life. I was discussing with the sermon group this week that reading through the Sermon on the Mount is quite eye-opening. Anybody ever read through it before? Super eye-opening. And many will read through it and they'll contemplate what it would look like to live into everything that Jesus teaches, to do everything that Jesus did. And you'll get two sides of the spectrum for the most part. You'll, you'll get Christians that think it's practicing legalism when we begin to do all of the things that Jesus did. And so they would say something like, it's the grace of God that makes up for all that we do not do. And so we don't have to actually do all of these things, which there's an element of truth in. However, then there's this other camp of Christians that says, no, you actually have to do all of these things. And so rush out and do them with your hearts completely disengaged from the work that you're going to do. Just go do the things that Jesus has taught you to do. And so is it legalism, I guess is my question, to do what Jesus did? I mean, as we get into the next few months of teachings, we're going to talk a lot about what Jesus did and what it looks like for us to do these things. Is that legalism? And so I, I was talking to the sermon group this week, and I said, I think for our church, we sort of need to define legalism, because I would say that legalism is doing something, expecting the action to do only what Jesus could do for you. So if you're looking for the action to save you, if you're looking for the action to provide grace upon grace for you, if you're looking for the action to accomplish something for you that only Jesus could do through his life, his death, and his resurrection, then you are living a legalistic life. But legalism is not responding to in obedience to what God's asked of us and living as he lived. Like Jesus spent three years of his life with his disciples teaching them to do all that he commanded them to do. It's important to the Lord. Like the pure heart that Jesus is talking about is the heart that is set on following Jesus' lead and rejecting anything that would get in the way of their following Jesus. Verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. A peacemaker, somebody who prioritizes relationship above their own vindication. So when you have conflict, you almost always have two sides of the conflict. <clears throat> Neither can make peace because 
The person on either side feels as though they're going to lose out. In the end, they're going to be wronged. And a peacemaker is someone who says, I value the relationship more than I value being right. Let me try and see it your way. Like, I'll, I'll explain to you my view, but I'm going to try even harder to understand yours than I am to make you understand mine. Peacemakers are like Jesus. Jesus was clearly in the right. Think about this. We were in the wrong. He didn't surrender his position, but he actually valued us, so he prioritized the relationship even over vindication, and he goes to a cross in shame to win us back to himself. Jesus had every right to vindicate himself, and instead he laid his life down for us. And then in verses 10 through 12, he says this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So much we could say about this one, but here's how I want to summarize it. Blessed are those who value being right with God above anything else in their life. At some point in your life, everybody in here is going to suffer. At some point in your life, we all will die. At least have the satisfaction in knowing that what you're suffering for was right. It wasn't about you. You were suffering for his righteousness, for his sake. Hebrews 12.2 says this, when Jesus went to the cross... It says that he did so with joy because of saving us. And I want to have a similar joy when I go to my grave. How about you? Here's two thoughts I want to end with, and then I want to extend an opportunity to you guys. As I read through this, there were two things that like, really popped out at me about this, this text. One is this. That according to Jesus... Happiness was not a set of circumstances, but it was actually the fruit of a, right, of a right relationship with God. Happiness was not based on our circumstances. It was found in the fruit of a right relationship with God. Most of us um, think that happiness is found in some sort of set of circumstances in our life. And if this happens and this can happen, then I'll be happy. And so we want our circumstances to line up so they will make us happy. But our English word for happiness comes from the word happening. And you are happy when what you want to happen happens. And when what you want to happen doesn't happen, you're not happy. And according to Jesus, happiness was not rooted in a set of circumstances, but was the result of being rightly related to God. So here's the question for you. If life didn't change at all for you from this moment forward, whatever it is right now, your situation didn't improve, your marital status didn't change, your career didn't progress, your body didn't feel any better, could you be happy with life? None of the things that we think we need to be happy in life happened to Jesus. Isn't that interesting? In many ways, what happened to Jesus was like our greatest nightmare. 
our worst fears. He was single his whole life, owned no home, abandoned by his friends, misunderstood, maligned, and yet he had what? The joy of the Lord. The happiness you're looking for is found in being rightly related to Jesus. It's found in being secure in Jesus. It's found in living like Jesus. The second thing is this, that according to Jesus, happiness is actually a response to the gospel. And so one of the most important and overlooked details is where Jesus taught these things from. And so I wanna back up the detail pointed out in verse one. It it says that he had gone up to the mountain to give this teaching. Jesus had retreated up into this mountain to give this teaching. And the teaching that Jesus gave was actually the law. So throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus keeps referring back to Moses' law. If you read through it, he says things like, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. And Jesus is giving this new version of the law. And it's supposed to remind you of another great teacher. Who is that that it's pointing back to? Moses. You've heard it said, this is what Moses said, but I say to you, and then Jesus goes on with what he's teaching. Which actually leads me to the most common way that I think people misconstrue these teachings. I think that sometimes people will look at these things like a list that you work through to earn God's favor in your life. A list that you work through to earn God's salvation for you, to get you out of the funk that you find yourself in. Like, I will do these things if God will pull me out of this mess, if I will feel better than I do now, if happiness is a result. And it's sort of the set of things that you have to do in order to be blessed by God, which is the most common way people uh, actually misunderstand the original 10 commandments too. Like, do these and you still live. If you follow the 10 commandments, everything should be right. But it's interesting in the book of Exodus because Moses gave this law after salvation. Like God had already delivered the Israelites out of slavery from the Egyptians through the Red Sea, like we talked about a couple weeks ago. And then these 10 commandments were, were not ways that they should live in order to be saved, but because they had been saved. And so as Jesus gives this list of the Beatitudes, these blessings, it's not a list of things that you do in order to be saved by God, but this is a list of things that we do that that, that are characteristic of us because we've been saved. Like throughout the commandments, God kept saying, I'm the God who delivered you from Egypt, therefore you shall have no other gods. You shall not kill, steal, lie, etc. And in the same way, these eight things are things that we do because we've been saved, because of his grace at work in our lives, because Jesus has saved us, we can be poor in spirit because we know he promises to be our sufficiency in all things, amen? Two, because Jesus saved us, we can enter into others' pain and we can mourn because that's what Jesus did for us, amen? Because Jesus saved us, we can be meek and we can take second place because that's what Jesus did for you and I. Because Jesus saved us, we can hunger and thirst for righteousness because the God of righteousness has actually become our savior. Because Jesus saved us, we can't help but being merciful to others because that's how Jesus was to you and I. Because Jesus saved us, we wanna be pure in heart so that we can know him more. Because Jesus saved us, we can prioritize peace instead of our own vindication 
because that's what Jesus did for us. And lastly, because Jesus saved us, we can endure persecution because Jesus' resurrection actually shows us that it's worth it. Amen? As we get into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in the weeks to come, we're gonna continue to talk about what it looks like for us to live a life for Jesus, to live like Jesus, do what Jesus did. And I wanna go into these weeks with this really good definition of legalism that we're not doing these things to earn our way to God. We're not doing this, these things with the expectation that these things will do for us what only Jesus could. But we're gonna do these things because it's an overflow of what Jesus has done in and through us because he has saved us, because of his life, his death, and his resurrection, because of the power of God that lives within us, it should determine which way we walk forward, shouldn't it? In obedience to the one who paid the ultimate price for us. And so this morning as we close out, we're gonna spend some time taking communion. And what an awesome thing is we've just worked through these, these eight statements and talked about the blessed life, the happy life. What an awesome thing that we get to actually partake in the body and the blood of Jesus and be reminded this morning why we do what we do, who we do it for, and what he did for us. Amen? Would you guys stand with me? I'm going to ask those who are serving communion to step forward. And I want to pray for us. There's some of you in this room this morning um, who have literally lived your lives in such a way that you've strived for morality for morality's sake, hoping that doing the right things and being a good person would be enough. And I just want to tell you this morning that it's a means to an end, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you want to find true life, true peace, if you want that hole in your heart to actually be satiated this morning, it will only happen through your belief and your trust in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Some of you this morning, you feel weary and you feel as though there's just no way you can move on in doing what Jesus did because you're so ridden with guilt and shame for what it is you're doing. And may you be reminded this morning that it's by his grace through faith that you're saved. It has nothing to do with what you can do. It has everything to do with what he did. And so as we take communion this morning, as Jesus reminded his disciples, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And he gave them the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he gave them the wine and he said, drink of this. This is my blood shed for you. This morning we partake in communion, not as a religious ritual, but because we want to be reminded this morning of the grace and the gift of the Most High God sent to us in the form of his son, Jesus, to pay the only price for us that he could pay. And so as you come forward to take communion this morning, my challenge to you, sit there for a minute if you have to. Contemplate in your heart where you stand before the Lord this morning. Have you put others first? Have you put him first? this morning? Or is your life kind of in chaos as you begin to put everything else first in hopes that that would make you happy? May we be a church 
that is literally full of the power and the presence of Jesus, amen. And as we walk in his power with his presence, may we be reminded that we're only given this gift because of what he did for us on the cross. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your church. Thank you for each life in this room. Jesus, there's so much going on in so many people's lives that I have no idea about. But this morning, Lord, I know that you're literally reaching a hand down from heaven. And for some in this room, you're inviting them to get up, to get pulled out of the mess that they find themselves in, to set their feet upon a rock and to be saved by you, Jesus. I pray, Jesus, that there's some in this room that would take that step this morning to entrust their life into your hands, to believe that you lived a perfect life on this earth, that you died a brutal death in order to forgive us our sins, and that, Jesus, you did not stay in that grave, but you rose again, and that the power of the Most High God resides within us who call upon your name and are saved by you, through you, Jesus. As we take communion this morning, I pray it be just an amazing reminder of how awesome you are, God. Protect us from doing religious rituals and walking in legalism, but empower us to know that because of the power you've put in us, we actually get to walk out the ways of Jesus. And Lord, I'm so excited. I'm so stoked to see what you have done in us and how that manifests itself in the city we live in and the people's lives that we come into contact with. I pray your grace would abound. I pray your forgiveness would abound and your peace would abound. I pray that the city would look different as a result of your people choosing to walk in obedience and trust in your grace to sustain them. Jesus, in your name, amen. As we sing this next song, feel free to come forward and grab some communion elements and then go back to your chair and spend some time praying and seeking the Lord this morning before you take communion.